Okay, Brandon Katz, that is you. That is me today. I'm Jean Bentley. This is Must Watch Netflix Edition, and in case you couldn't tell by our really wonderful scintillating banter, not sarcastic, we're great. Uh, (laughs) We're talking about Netflix's original films, and this week we have compiled what we feel to believe the eight most important Netflix original films, and I think that the key phrase here is most important, not necessarily the best. Correct. But the most crucial to Netflix's overall film strategy, film play. So that's what's happening this week. It's good stuff, you know. They're releasing so many movies, and we got the Oscars coming up, so we're taking this moment to look back as we prepare to jut out into the future, which is completely unknown territory, especially after this massive Knives Out Netflix deal. So, you know, a lot of crazy stuff on the horizon. For now, I think to start this list off, Gene, you could make a very, very, very strong case that Roma from 2018 is the single most important Netflix original film ever. And I have a few reasons why. Uh, First of all, it's their first ever Best Picture nominee. And we all know, as we've discussed on this pod a million times, that Netflix is thirsty for some awards validation. They are, you know, the 60-year-old guy on vacation on the beach just being creepy and scoping girls in bikinis. That's that's what Netflix is, the creepy (laughs) thirster for validation like that. But as the first Best Picture nominee, it was finally kind of a strike back for Netflix because three years prior, Amazon actually was the first streaming service to claim a Best Picture nominee with Manchester by the Sea. Even though that was released theatrically, you know it was a a bug in Netflix's craw, to borrow a a Southern phrase. They were not happy because they were outspending Amazon twofold, even at at that point. And I think this was important not only for the message that Roma sent everyone, not only for the beautiful film that it was, but it was also Netflix's first ever Best Director nominee with Alfonso Cuaron, who went on to win. And remember, this is t- 2018 when the movie came out. Outside of the Coen brothers with The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Cuaron is the most high-profile filmmaker who ever worked at Netflix at that point. You know, they were not pulling in the Ron Howards, the David Finchers, you know, they, they weren't regularly getting A-list people. So I, I think the fact that he was able to go there make the movie he wanted to make, which is a a black and white film, but certainly non-traditional. It's not necessary for the mainstream. And to be rewarded with so much critical praise and so many uh, accolades at the Academy Awards, that was a beacon to the rest of Hollywood that, hey, not only is this a place where creative visions are championed, but this is a a destination where your film can get the recognition you think it deserves and that we know you want, because let's be honest, Hollywood is the most ego-driven industry in the world. Uh, And then so to kind of cap it all off, Gene, Rome was also a non-English film that was considered the front-runner for Best Picture for the majority of that Oscar season before Green Book's upset win, which that's that's a can of worms for another podcast. So without Roma's success, Gene, I ask you, do you think the Academy would have rewarded Parasite with Best Picture if Roma hadn't come a couple years before to kind of knock down a few doors? That's such an interesting question. And and I guess my answer is going to be boring and it's going to be like, we will never know. But I will also say... <laughs> I mean, you're right. I, yeah. But I will also say I it, it can't have hurt. It certainly helped 
it also, it certainly helped to normalize the idea of a non-English language film um, being up there in contention for all of those major awards. So I, I do think that it made an impact, um, you know, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I think normalize is the best word you could choose because I mean I think before then there had been a couple non-English language films nominated for best picture but it was certainly a rarity and I would say that the average everyday movie going fan as well as probably the majority of the entertainment you know media empire would have said that a non-English film does not stand a great chance at winning and then Roma came along beautiful film about you know, the, the family we have and the family we create in life about how women in society are, are, are basically second class in so many uh, situations and about kind of loss and, and persevering. A beautiful film. Without that, genuinely storming the gates and being the odds on favorite for months. I, I just don't know. Again, like you said, if it's normalized enough for Parasite to be like, wow, we got to get this into the number one spot not just like this is a feel-good story we'll toss it a nomination so for all those reasons for for breaking netflix's glass ceiling for lack of a better term i think roma was a precedent setter and probably their most important overall film now if they ever win a best picture award at the oscars we can come and revisit it we can record a second pod an updated pod yeah exactly well we'll see how this year year goes um so, in a completely other direction, I'm going to skip over to uh, the another film that came out in 2018 on Netflix that caused a lot of stir. Um, and, of course, I'm talking about To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Uh, <laughs> you know, the seminal, the seminal film. I kid, but, but I but think... But do you? Do you, Not Jean? really, honestly. <laughs> I'll I'll tell you which one of the these movies that I've watched more than once, and that is to all of the boys I've loved before. So you know, although I do love Alfonso Cuarón, he's one of one of my favorite directors. Um, uh, Roma is just not the one that I would revisit. I will, I will say that. Um, is beautiful though. <laughs> Great. You dance, heard it here dance. first, Gene yeah. Bentley talking <laughs> shit about no. Roma in favor of to all the boys. No, that's no. the headline. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, but so, so to all the boys I've loved before represents a very specific um, genre of film. This YA high school genre. Also, um, you know, just a sweet rom-com, which is something that studios had gotten away from. And we haven't really had quite as many theatrically released in recent years. To All the Boys I've Loved Before also came out a couple of months after another YA sensation Netflix original, The Kissing Booth. But uh, these are very different movies because The Kissing Booth is a bad movie and To All the Boys I've Loved Before is a good movie. Finally, someone that- said it. I I agree completely and I applaud you. I, I have not watched the last two Kissing Booth movies because I was like, nope, that first one was terrible. It it is bad. There are great things involved in that movie, but totally. the movie itself is bad. Well said. Uh, and one thousand years long, or at least that's just what it felt like when I watched it. Anyway, it it basically um, to all the boys is a perfect example of Netflix being a great home for genres that weren't necessarily. Um, in vogue theatrically or companies didn't think were worth 
investing in. Uh, it launched launched a full trilogy. We we got three to all the boys um, movies, all based on the books in the book series. It also launched a full-on star in Noah Centineo um, to a lesser degree, Lana Condor, which is terrible because she's wonderful. She is a better actress, uh, <laughs> uh, but she's definitely, you know, didn't get the same internet heartthrob uh, edit <laughs> that Noah Centineo did. But but it did mint um, a, a new kind of star. I also think that it kind of goes hand in hand with a couple of other uh, rom-coms that came out in 2018 and 2017, which were also all really cited as kind of exploding the the rom-com genre or rom-drum genre. So I, like I think about Set It Up with Zoe Deutsch and Glenn Powell, which I have mentioned love before. It. I love. I think it's wonderful. Um, Always Be My Maybe with Ollie Wong and Ooh. Randall Park. So good. And um, also, I would put in um, Someone Great. The um, It was kind of more of a breakup movie, but with um, Gina Rodriguez. Uh, all a similar vibe, a similar genre, a similar kind of non-theatrical powerhouse genre that found a really great home on Netflix and, and inspired many other... Uh, programming moves on Netflix's part, and and I think that it's a pretty important film overall yeah. in in Netflix's oeuvre. <laughs> <laughs> I, Gene, I'm trying to poke holes in your argument just for the sake of you know good uh, conflict discussion for this podcast, but I, I simply can't. I, I agree. I don't think people realize how impressive it is that. To All the Boys I've Loved Before basically represents Netflix's ability to provide a viable commercial home for genres that were deemed no longer profitable, no longer successful. There was no room in traditional movie going for movies like this anymore. Netflix flipped the script completely. And as you've seen on every single other streamer, both on the TV formats and movie formats, they've revived the genre. And that is Unbelievable that they could bring something back from the dead based on, on how they kind of crafted it, crafted it specifically for a streaming at-home audience. And I think what you said before, too, as well, about how it develops stars. You know, Noah Centineo, Lana Condor, these are now homegrown Netflix stars, and both internally at Netflix and externally uh, to, to in pitch meetings and, and, and things like that. The streaming company actually used the social media following explosion for Centineo and Condor, as well as Millie Bobby Brown for Stranger Things, as results and capabilities of Netflix's global reach. They pointed to it within the company, and when pitching other talent, they said, this is what we can do for you. And while I don't want to say, you know, if X, then Y, I do think the huge glow up of a Noah Centineo and a Millie Bobby Brown helped usher in the, the the kind of glow up and homegrown stardom of, of an Ali Wong who started with two specials at Netflix, then did Always Be My Maybe, voiced a character on Tuca and Birdie, is developing a couple more uh, specials and TV shows for Netflix. I, I think it showed Hollywood at large, hey, we are capable of taking you from no name to name brand. And I think that's important for Netflix's film studio and just their ability to attract and work with con- uh, talent across the board. So... Hell yeah, Gene, to all the boys. Yeah. 
All right, I'm going to switch the script up a little bit here. Like we said at the top, Gene, it's not about the best movies. It's about the most important movies. And so that leads me to 2018's Bird Box with Sandra Bullock, who is delightful always and in everything. But Bird Box is a terrible film. All right. (laughs) If you liked it, if you think, if you're arguing to me right now, this is a good, high quality cinematic tale. You're dumb. I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm very much the nice guy on this pod, but like you're just dumb because that movie is awful. What if I was like, Brandon, it was great. I don't know what you're talking about. I'd be like, Gene, I love you. I've loved uh, becoming friends with you. I've loved hosting this podcast with you, but you're dumb. I'm sorry. You're stupid. But you're stupid. Luckily, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I I just need to put that out there. I'm not saying that. If you were, you know, I respect your opinions elsewhere, (laughs) but that was one I'd have to draw the line. But why? Why is it Netflix is one of their most important films? That's because it was the first movie in Netflix's, what did you say before, oeuvre? Is that the French word? Oeuvre, yes. I don't speak French. (laughs) It was the first one to connect and then leverage viral internet culture. People forget because it was three years ago and in this 24-7, you know, cycle, that is, might as well be the Jurassic Park era. But this meme, this movie was memed to death. Twitter was exploding with GIFs and memes, as was the whole internet, as was things like Reddit and, you know, even Pinterest. Uh, the Bird Box Blindfold Challenge became a hit, like, YouTube uh, uh, sensation. And what was the uh, what was the, the seven-second video platform that then got def- defunct? Vine? Vine, yes. It was a rest. huge Vine thing. Yes, rest in peace. <laughs> it proved that a Netflix original film could penetrate the zeitgeist in a way that had not occurred to that point. It dominated the internet for a good two weeks. And on top of that, if we want to talk about just raw numbers, according to Netflix's own internal numbers, which, again, are a little bit wonky and hazy, but 89 million viewers in the first four weeks of its release. If accurate, that represents more than half of the company's 158 million worldwide subscribers at the time of the movie's release. And uh, if accurate, that is still three years later, I believe their fourth or fifth most watched original film ever. So it was clearly a hit for them. And it was clearly a hit in the sense that it actually made an imprint. It didn't just come deliver and get chewed up by the nonstop 24-7 ether that is pop culture. People actually talked about it and engaged with it. So yes, Bird Box is terrible, as I mentioned so eloquently at the top of this little rant, but it served a very crucial purpose for the development of Netflix as a destination, not just a platform. Yeah, and the memes were great. The memes were very (laughs) funny, which, which I liked because... The whole thing is is you have to wear a blindfold because you can't see the creatures that'll kill you in that world. I wanted to watch the movie with a blindfold. That's how bad I think it is. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, you know, kind of along those lines. <laughs> uh, another, it's it's funny how many uh, of the films on this list were not great movies, and and another one of those that I'm going to say right now is the movie Murder Mystery, Mm. which came out in 2019. And it was Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston um, solving a murder mystery. Honestly, (laughs) I need to tell you, though, that I watched this movie and completely forget what it was about. I know that I watched it 
sometimes I forget. Uh, that I actually I've seen rewatched it. it recently for the first time since it came out. And and I was like, wow, I, I did not remember anything in this movie. But I will say quickly, I do think it's probably the best of the Netflix Sandler partnership. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and And here's the other thing is like, that is exactly how I would expect this, you know, Adam Sandler, Jennifer Aniston, Netflix money <laughs> film to be totally fine. Yeah. It was fine. It was enjoyable. I do remember that I watched it randomly on like a Friday night that I stayed in and probably poured some wine and watched this movie and had Classic. a perfectly nice evening. Yeah. And, and, and I think that is an important part of the strategy too, right? Because Netflix, before they started doing original films, was the place where you would scroll through and just try to figure out what you were watching that night. I mean, let's be real. We just scrolled for 25 minutes before watching The Office again. Exactly. (laughs) Sometimes you get choice paralysis. So if Netflix, you open your Netflix and it serves you, oh, there's a new like... Adam Sandler, Jennifer Aniston movie, and they're, you know, driving through Europe and there's pretty sights and sure, click, you know? Right. And, and, and that I think is also just as important as the artsy, uh, award movies, as the, um, lesser appreciated genre movies, you know, it, it is, it has its own place and that place is important. It is a watchable film, which is important. And as we know, as we've discussed on this pod, I mean, Adam Sandler and Netflix originally launched into partnership in 2014 with a $250 million four-picture deal. And after that, back in 2020, Netflix extended the deal for another four-picture. So even if most of them are terrible, they do really, really well for Netflix. Yeah, and it gave us Hubie Halloween, um, famously (laughs) a movie you loved. So much. <laughs> and for everyone listening at home, that is deep sarcasm on Gene's part. <laughs> deep sarcasm. <laughs> um, Hubie Halloween, by the, the, the I think we talked about it in our very first episode. Hubie Halloween was fine. I thought it was fine. Brennan hated it. <laughs> hated it. And I and I love Adam Sandler. You know, my my childhood is Adam Sandler. Yeah. But man, I hated that. But to kind of wrap this one up. It doesn't need to be the best movie in the world. It just needs to be important for Netflix. And for Netflix to be spending what could potentially be $500 million over two deals with Adam Sandler, Murder Mystery delivered 83 million viewers in its first four weeks per Netflix's numbers. That would be good enough for the fifth most watched original film of all time for Netflix. And you got to remember, they've released over the last five, six years, well over 400 films total. So to be the fifth most watch out of all of those, doesn't matter if it's good or bad. That is clearly successful. It's clearly saying, hey, our partnership actually continues to improve with Adam Sandler. So it seems like they're making good on that investment. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. But I do also love that Adam Sandler then went and did Uncut Gems, which could be his best film overall. Yeah, probably. Probably, although not quite as quotable as like Billy Madison, which is my favorite no. of the 90s. No Sandlers. Quite. But yeah, (laughs) but also very good gifts. You know, like I love when someone throws out a really terrible like, nah, you're an idiot. That movie was terrible. And I'm like, I disagree. You know, when he's when he's talking to them better, he's like, the Celtics aren't going to win. I disagree. That gift is so great. (laughs) All right. Well, now that we're kind of in this realm of films that maybe aren't so great, but had a crucial development 
for Netflix, I'm going to go with Extraction from 2020. That is Chris Hemsworth. Uh, This was important because essentially it is launching a big budget action franchise for Netflix. And Chris Hemsworth, regardless of how successful or not he's been outside of the safety net of Marvel, is a big A-list name. So when you get someone like that and you're able to build a franchise, which they are because they're developing a sequel, that's really important for Netflix. They know that repetitive cash flow, i.e. sequels, are the lifeblood of Hollywood. And even though it's a little bit of a different formula than the box office, it's really important for them. So Extraction, to me, Gene, everything about this movie is pretty much awful. Like the acting, the story, the characters, the dialogue. But I think the action and the fight choreography is the best in Hollywood this side of John Wick. I remember 20 minutes into that movie, I texted my buddy, I'm like, this is one of the worst films I've seen this year. And he goes, just wait. And by the end of that movie, I was like, I want to watch that again because it whoops so much effing ass. And that's really for someone for someone like me who appreciates the artsy fartsy movies and for work covers the Oscars. I also am so down with like, a you know, a nobody with Bob Odenkirk. A bunch of people get killed and there's some funny one liners. I'm in. Hell yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. So ultimately that worked. That proved to be the best formula for Netflix. 99 million viewers in its first month. Extraction is Netflix's most successful original film ever, which boggles the mind, but shows you that it is a kind of blue trip, blue chip launching pad franchise for them now. And moving forward, I bet the Extraction property becomes one of the most high priority titles in Netflix's studio. Yeah, and and it has Chris Hemsworth, who I adore. Um it's hard you not know, to. Yeah. I mean it, Speaking of Aussies. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it has Chris Hemsworth biceps. Um, and but also the the statistic, the 99 million viewers in its first month, right? Okay, so here's the thing about Netflix. We can't really take any of its viewership metrics at face value because it doesn't actually salt. release anything but i will say that they are useful in terms of um how realizing how netflix deems something a success and if it is important enough to them that they are releasing these figures that is also impressive and an indicator of things that it plans to um, prioritize in the future. So, Absolutely. so like, call, yes, Jane. these numbers are like whatever, but they're hazy still at best. Yeah, like, do you really think ninety nine million people um, watch Netflix in that month? I-, I don't, because also, what does that mean? Did they watch ten minutes? Did they watch one minute? So Did they Netflix watch defines seconds? a Netflix defines a view as any member account that watches for at least two minutes. Now, first of all. Two minutes is a, is a bullshit number, but it's not Netflix's. It's actually uh, what YouTube and the New York Times and one other big company use, and they borrowed that. They're like, we're just going to use the industry standard that's already out there. So it's not like Netflix invented it, but it's still bullshit. You could watch two minutes. You could leave something on by accident and go to your kitchen. doesn't mean that you like intended to watch it. But because we don't really have a ton of av- other available data, it's the best we can kind of work with. And like you said... These numbers are are most likely bullshit. Take them with a huge grain of salt. But if Netflix is releasing numbers for a project, which they do very selectively, it clearly means it was some sort of success internally. 
Exactly. Exactly. Um, so jumping to another very different vibe <laughs> from Extraction, um, another film that I think was extremely important to Netflix, and perhaps I am using the word film a little too liberally, <laughs> uh, but the 2017 movie A Christmas Prince, which is one of those low-budget, super-fast holiday productions like you would have found on Lifetime or Hallmark, which I feel like in 2017, 2018 is when they reached their peak saturation or popularity in pop culture. They're, you know, they're part of everything now, but I think the frenzy surrounding them was super-duper high. Dude, I've actually, I've never seen it, but my my soon-to-be girlfriend is obsessed with trashy, yeah, ooh, a little a little hot goss on must-watch yes. Netflix edition this ooh, week. Soon-to-be? You better talk to her soon about to that be before girlfriend. she listens to this. Uh, and she, <laughs> she, she, she knows the game. She knows the game. She, she, but she is obsessed with trashy Christmas, like holiday, uh, uh, movies, despite the fact that we're both Jewish. Uh, she loves specifically Christmas movies. So because I've never seen this, not only am I engaging in a wonderful conversation about something I love, which is entertainment, but you've now given me a amazing, like Saturday night, like, Hey, like you want to curl up and watch this, uh, this thing that I know you'll love. She's like, Oh my God, this is great. I can't believe it. So thank you, Jean. You are inadvertently wing womaning. You're welcome. And it's delightful. It's, you know, okay, so I feel like it has a lot of the characteristics that make the best of the Lifetime and the Hallmark movies. Um, The most important of which is a good, charming lead. And Rose McIver, who was starring on iZombie on the CW at this point, um, is the star of this. And she plays like a reporter who somehow finds herself undercover in... Uh, the palace of a fictional European country and like befriends the prince and um, not to spoil it, but they fall in love. I'm so sorry. <gasps> How I'm dare so you, Jean? I could have so never sorry. seen that coming from a Netflix <laughs> straight to streaming rom-com. Yeah. But, but anyway, it's delightful. And it was filmed in Romania. And I know this cool. because um, they filmed it at, this castle in Brasov, Romania, where I had been that summer. And I was like, wait, is that that castle that I went to? That's <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah. And they fil- they filmed the other ones there too, for sure. Um, anyway, but basically it proved that it proved a smart investment in that Netflix can hang with the lifetimes, with the hallmarks in the like Christmas movie industrial complex, right. which I think everyone now knows is a really booming business. And at that point, Netflix hadn't dipped their toes in it. And then they were like, oh, this works. Okay. (laughs) I mean, now it's what? Christmas Chronicles 2 movies. They've got Klaus, the animated beloved movie. They have, um, oh God, the holiday one that we watched. And I hate it again (laughs) from one of our first episodes. I mean, they have very much become not just like a dabbler, very active in the holiday, specifically kind of Christmassy holiday kind of genre so i did yeah. not know this was, was this was their launching pad this was their dip their toe in i would i would point to this one as a launching pad they had another original one that year that was like really bad i don't even remember what it was but anyway um but yeah and then and then you saw this year they had jingle jingle which was a yes. legitimately good high budget well-produced movie with a lot of talent that was it was like a great movie so so i think that it kicked things off for them spawned a bunch of sequels and and 
made them a player in the game. And I think it's an easy watch. It's it's cute. It's fine. <laughs> Which I hate to the fact that it's so I'm kind of like, oh man, it's a bummer that so many of these are like, these are fine movies, but they were <laughs> but they were. We're not we're being honest with you. And yeah. they were crucial to Netflix's strategy. But luckily we're gonna end on two legitimately good movies. <laughs> Well, well, quickly before we do, I, I like, and what you just said really kind of hammered it home. I think I, I like in this conversation, we are seeing the seeds being planted for what would become current and future strategies at Netflix, whether that's, you know, the 2017 movies that got us to here or like a 2020 movie extraction that kind of paints the way forward because Netflix is now very franchise focused and IP focused. So that's what I think the big benefit from this conversation is. It gives us a big picture of Netflix's developing strategy. Most importantly, before we move on, do they let Rose speak in her native New Zealand accent, which is just flooringly cute? Unfortunately. Oh, let let, I'm so let her be natural. I'm so let, let all accents flow. Let her be a Kiwi. She did not need to be American. Um, yeah, there's a lot of questionable accent work in this movie, but not from her. <laughs> I very much like iZombie, by the way. Yeah, right? Yeah, not from her. She's great. No. She's great. <laughs> all right, so I'm going to flip over to... This is actually a little bit divisive, because a lot of people disagree. You can just check out its Rotten Tomatoes page. But Okja, the Bong Joon-ho movie from 2017. And the reason I put this here is because, in my opinion... Okja is Netflix's first must-watch movie, and that isn't just clever branding to fit with our show title here. Prior to Okja, Netflix's original films, to me, ranged from, you know, flawed but with potential, like A Beast of No Nation with Idris Elba or A War Machine with Brad Pitt, two movies that I think aren't necessarily good but have a lot of good elements, and you could see Netflix making progress. They range from those to kind of outright unwatchable movies like we said most of adam sandler's god-awful terrible films at least according to me you know adaptations like death note that pleased nobody so i think for netflix to come along and deliver a film with real quality and with real gravitas and that's no disrespect you know to the holiday movies to the 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 kind of go with the flow comedies but this is a movie that had legitimate thematic merit it had serious things on its mind that it wanted to discuss. And I think to me, it also put a punctuation mark early on on Netflix's focus on international global content and talent that kind of appealed across the demographic spe spectrum. And we actually talked about in our recent episode with Casey Moore of What's on Netflix, how the streamer has really embraced that international crime genre to kind of become one of its bread and butter originals on the TV side. So... Bong Joon-ho's Okja really is the epitome of all of these early efforts to make Netflix a cross-demographic, you know, global destination that isn't just appealing to Hollywood U.S. fans. And at the same time, it also got them in the door with a phenomenal director who would go on to make a masterpiece in Parasite. So I think that also bought them some cachet with other filmmakers, because as we saw, you know, Alfonso Cuaron a year later they're starting to get some heavy hitters in terms of filmmaking talent. So Okja to me, oh man, it's, it's a film I want to go back and revisit. And if for nothing else, besides the quality, the, the, 
the non-English uh, elements, the globe-trotting story, if for nothing else, Jake Gyllenhaal's unhinged performance that should have been one of the most widely celebrated performances of the year. He is absolutely gonzo in that, and I love it. Yeah, he's he's bananas in that movie. I also just, Full like, bananas. I can understand why it was a little bit more divisive, um, it, but it also is, like, kind of Director Bong's, like, trademark of he's making a movie with a very specific social statement. Yes. And, and, and I feel like, you know... Um, Parasite is the perfect example of that, although some people are like, didn't really get it, but that's fine. <laughs> See, my, and this is no, no disrespect to my dad, who I love a lot, but he said of Parasite, and I think that also extends to Okja, I don't like when people point out a problem, but don't offer any solutions. I actually, while I think that's a, a fair criticism, I think for both Okja and Parasite and a lot of Bong Joon-ho's work, I love that he's essentially saying, these are the ills of society. This is what plagues humanity and modern contemporary culture from multiple systemic levels you fucking figure out how to fix it because you're the ones who created this so i actually really like that and think that's a statement in and of itself and maybe i'm getting too far up my own critic butt here but that's how i feel and that's what i like about okja too no easy solutions yeah exactly it is a um it is a mirror held up to society and uh he's saying deal with it Deal with you. <laughs> Come get yourself. Figure it out. You you guys uh, yeah. made your bed. Now you got to sleep in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and and to end this little discussion on another high note, I am going to say that the last of these six. What did we pick? Eight. 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 Eight, eight of the most important Netflix eight. original films in Netflix history, which, as we also pointed out, is not very long. Six, yeah. six or seven years, I think. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you if you think about the years that these films that we're talking about came out, uh, 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2020. That is it. That is it. That is wild. <laughs> and I believe their first original film was 2015. So... Like, imagine what they're going to be like in 15 years. Exactly. So the last film that we want to put on this list is Icarus, which is a documentary that came out in 2017. And it is also responsible for um, Netflix's first ever major Oscar. It won the Best Documentary Oscar for the, the 2017 awards. Um, and I think that Netflix had won shorts either that year or the year before. Um, but this was the first of the major, you know, televised important awards. Yeah. The feature that, length awards. Exactly. That Netflix won. They would go on to win again two years later uh, with American Factory, the, the Obama's produced documentary. But Icarus is... Um, First of all, it's great. I don't know if you've seen it, but it is about this guy who decides that he's going to make a document. He used to be a big cycler and he decides he's going to make a documentary about um, steroid use and and use himself as a test subject to see if it like how it affects his performance. But in doing so, stumbles upon this 
Russian conspiracy that leads to Russia being suspended from the Olympics for doping. Who it, says Hollywood can't <laughs> cause change, all right? Exactly. Come on. It is wild. It is a wild ride, like literally on bikes and <laughs> it is a literal wild yeah. ride. And and I as I have mentioned on this podcast many times before. It is really just a continuation of Netflix's investment in documentaries because before we had Netflix, it was really hard to see the most critically acclaimed documentaries of the year because not every one of those films would go on to get distribution. And in the earliest days of Netflix, even before it was streaming, they would buy documentaries to have on their service and you could get, you know, the DVDs of of these hot documentaries. And then obviously when it went to streaming, this was a destination where you could go for some of the best documentaries around. And I think that Netflix being like, okay, now we're going to finance them ourselves um, was just a huge step. And now we see docu-series, documentaries, you know, the Obama's production deal, the the Sussex's production deal, their first thing is going to be a docu-series. This is a genre that Netflix is investing in, but it's also a genre where they're doing it well. They are teaming up with good people to make some really interesting stuff. So I think that it might not necessarily be as as well known as some of the other movies on this list, but it is certainly um, equally as important. I'm so glad that you brought up the fact that Netflix used to buy documentaries for their service because Reed Hastings, the, C- the co-CEO right now, who's been there you know, from the beginning, 20 plus years at Netflix, he has talked about publicly how the success of the documentaries that they bought, you know, you're talking 2008, 2009, 2010, how those successes basically convinced Netflix, yeah, we can and we will get into original programming ourselves. You know, people think House of Cards is the first original they ever put up. And technically that's true, especially for scripted. But the fact that they were housing exclusively these documentaries is what gave them the confidence to make that pivot. So without that, we don't get what Netflix has become, and we never get Icarus, an award-winning documentary that is literally a wild ride. I don't mean to make make light of a serious topic, but it is that was just a funny, silly little pun. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you so much. Well, listen, I know that this is... Uh, it is an interesting list. I think it's a varied list. And I'm it's definitely an eclectic inter- list for yeah, sure. Yeah, it's an eclectic list. I'm interested in what people are thinking. So if you have any thoughts on our list, if you think we're the biggest idiots in the world or the biggest geniuses in the world, thank you so much, yes. Um, please don't forget to uh, hit us up on, on social media. I'm at hygiene on Twitter. Brandon is um, the great at Catsby. great underscore Catsby. The great underscore Catsby. And um, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen, and, and, and click that follow button, baby. And now that we have looked back on how Netflix has become the film studio behemoth that it is today, we're going to look forward next week as we basically preview Netflix's prognosis at the Oscars, the big night, the night they spend $100 million plus million for every year. So get ready for that because I'm excited. Me too. Until next week, you guys. See ya.
that was good.